Assume nothing. Question everything and start thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast, hosted by Seth Andrews. You and I see so much in our culture this sort of imposition of divine authority. And we find ourselves invoking George Orwell, and I have done this often. But how much did I really know about the man? One Dreams series has been educating me about George Orwell. The course itself is called George Orwell, A Sage for All Seasons. And it talks about what informed his writings about this dystopian, totalitarian future and the attempts by power players to quell free thought. A flawed but fascinating man, and this Wondrium series about George Orwell is just one of the thousands of offerings on my favorite educational platform. With so many subjects and options, video or audio, the production values are absolutely superb. You can stream anywhere totally commercial-free. And it's a daily chance to learn about what you love. So do what I did. Sign up for Wondrium now, right now. My listeners can get two years of Wondrium for the price of one. That's a fantastic deal. Only available if you sign up with my special URL. Go to wondrium.com slash Seth. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Seth. Seth, wondrium.com slash Seth. There is video of today's broadcast. If you would like to watch this interview, that YouTube link is in the description box. I have a very special guest today. He is a Dutch-American primatologist and biologist. I hear his name referenced all the time. In fact, I have referenced his name all the time. He is an expert on social intelligence and behaviors in primates. His first book came out in 1982 called Chimpanzee Politics. Other books include The Age of Empathy, The Bonobo and the Atheist, and others. He teaches psychology at Emory University. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences, the Royal Dutch Academy of Sciences, he has served as editor-in-chief of the journal Behavior. He's been featured everywhere, print, research studies, television. And uh, quite frankly, I think he is a very friendly and cooperative pro-social simian. And so let me introduce to you the man, the educator, the primate, Franz Duvall. It's so good to have you, sir. It's a pleasure. You're welcome. I'm glad to be there. This is strange after seeing you in the abstract 
you know, I've always seen you referenced. I've read your books. I've seen your papers, watched your TED Talks, and now here you are. We're having a conversation. It's like Saul on the Damascus Road, you know, as Christ appears. And I'm just looking up. And, uh, <laughs> it's just one of those things. Yeah, yeah it shows um, I'm, I'm real. I'm, I'm you, real exist. you exist. You yeah, exist. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's so good to have you. Okay. So I come from a background where I might have once been, I don't know, if not intimidated, wary of someone like you as you talk about my fellow primates. I don't know. If if someone was to come to you and call you a monkey, you know, you're nothing but an ape, how would you respond to, uh, I don't know, would you call it an insult? How would you respond to someone who called you the ape? I don't see that as an insult, personally. Uh, I know they do that with politicians quite often. So, so Banksy recently he made a painting of the House of Commons in in England, uh, consisting of uh, primates. Yeah. So yeah, sometimes it's used as an insult, but um, uh, I don't see it that way. I, well, that's the idea, right? They're dirty, yeah. dumb, barbaric. You know, primitive aggression is their defining characteristic. But this is very much not the case, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. Um, we are primates. We have a primate psychology. Uh, our brains are not fundamentally different. They're, they're a bit bigger, but they're not different. So, so we uh, to call us a primate, you know, that's just the the truth, so to speak. So, do you do the whole um, Jane Goodall thing? You know, are you out there cavorting? Uh, cavorting is not the word. Are you socializing in person? Well, in primate. With not, the animals, you know. I'm not I sure she's. Do I'm not sure she's doing that. She's working with wild chimps, so um, that's not the kind of animals that you uh, approach and touch necessarily. Would Diane Fossey have fallen into that category? Mm, Diane Fossey was a, a problematic figure because she um, she got into a fight with the locals uh, about um, her animals. So she she was in, into gorillas. She did important uh, pioneering field work on gorillas, but uh, I said I don't think she had a lot of physical contact with them either. You know, that's not typical of field workers. That was uh, I don't I don't mean to get too dark at the beginning. Diane Fossey actually murdered her murder never solved. Some people say it was potentially someone who was in conflict with her over her work or the gorillas. No, the the most common theory is that it's local people who who got fed up with her. I see. I see. Uh, uh, yeah, I know there are stories of, of academic rivalries and stuff like that, but um, I'm not sure that they are supported. I see. You did a talk recently. It was a TED Talk on moral behavior in animals. And I found it interesting because you got into the subject of reconciliation. So you see primates in the wild and there is conflict, whether it's dominance behavior or, you know, it's about resources. I don't know, some conflict takes place. But then the dust blows over, right? It's done. Mm -hmm. But then you will see acts of reconciliation. Would you call them apology? Where, you know, it's it's a very thoughtful uh, mending of fences after one of these conflicts breaks out. Can you describe what you're talking about? Yeah, so in, in many animals, the, f the first one, you know, was in chimpanzees. And, and I discovered as a student long ago that chimpanzees kiss and embrace each other after fights. And so that's a very tense moment because you, you're approaching someone you had a fight with. Potentially, it's a dangerous moment. 
And so there's a lot of communication going on before the reconciliation takes place. And, and once we found it in chimps, people said at the time, well, only chimps will do this. Other animals don't do it. But now we have like 400 studies on all sorts of species from dolphins, elephants, wolves, you name it. Many animals, since they live in groups, they need to maintain their relationships after a fight. And so you see, uh, it's very often the, the dominant who, who approaches. Uh, sometimes it's the subordinate, the loser of the fight who approaches. But uh, there is a lot of um, complex reconciliation. And sometimes it's mediated. Sometimes there are third parties who bring two chimps together after a fight. Uh, and, and that's usually all the females who do that kind of thing. So it's, so it's very elaborate and it's very important to them because they, have, they live in a group. They, their survival depends on the group, and so they need to get along. And uh, winning and losing of fights is one thing, and that's something that biologists always have focused on, who wins, who loses. But it's also a, a matter of maintaining relationships. How much of that is transactional? You know, life will be a lot more difficult to me if I don't make up. I mean, is yeah, it, yeah. you know, is it a genuine, oh, I did a wrong thing? I mean, I know this is probably a subjective thing, but what's your perception? No, there's an utilitarian component to it in the sense that uh, reconciliation is most common between individuals who need each other. And that's in human society too, and in human political relationships too. So, um, uh, individuals who are close, like family members, who are friends, who always do things together, those are the ones who are going to reconcile. Individuals who don't care about each other, uh, well, um, that's a much more difficult proposition to have a reconciliation then. As a primatologist, I guess we should talk morality. I know you've been down this road a thousand times or more, but I'm going to lay the foundation. A lot of people come and they say, if you are, you know, if you accept the fact of evolution and our place as higher primates, how do you explain moral, ethical, even altruistic behavior? So I'll just throw out the morality question. How would you approach it? Well, altruistic behavior is easily found among the primates and in, and in other animals. Sometimes very costly altruism, such as when one chimpanzee defends another one against a leopard, for example. That's, of course, very costly altruism. So um, empathy is common in all the mammals. Uh, altruism is quite common. Uh, I got into, into the evolution of morality because people always assume that uh, morality comes from God and comes from religion. And I think it comes from human nature and, and including primate nature. And I'm not saying that a chimpanzee is a moral being the way we are, but uh, you can see many of these same tendencies uh, in other primates. Uh, and, and also um, issues related to re reciprocity, helping each other, the sense of fairness. We have done experiments on the sense of fairness in monkeys. And so um, all of these issues related to morality you can find in other species. When you talk about an experiment related to fairness, could you give me an example? So we did an experiment that became very famous and that you can find on the internet. If you look up fairness and monkeys, you will find it. Uh, because I think it has been downloaded now 200 million times. And it's an experiment in which two monkeys, capuchin monkeys, sit side by side, and we reward them differently. The monkeys realized the other one was getting the sweet grape, 
and they got stuck with mm -hmm. the cucumber. They had stuck their arm through a hole in the glass and they'd thrown it back at the researcher. I mean, it was not happy. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. And I thought, well, I've, I've seen examples of this among human primates. How much of this, though? I mean, is there true altruism? Here's how I frame it, sir. If I say helping someone else helps the species, which helps to protect me or keep me safe or provide resources to me, right? Helping the tribe comes back on me. I mean, do you address true altruism or is there such a thing? Well, the distinction between altruism and selfishness is very hard to make. Because even humans, when, when we are what we think are purely altruistic, we get a good feeling from it. It's called the warm glow effect. So basically you have a self you have a self-reward that is built into your altruistic behavior. So um, the, the distinction between altruism and selfishness is a bit of a red herring, I think. And, and of course, altruism and empathy evolved in many species because it, it had benefits for them. Otherwise, it would never have evolved. So it gives them benefits, and it gives humans benefits to live in a society where we, we help each other on occasion. So if I help you, I get a, a high. Would that be a way to say it? Yeah, actually, they can demonstrate that in in neuroscience studies, they find that the pleasure centers in your brain are activated when you do something good for somebody else, or you give money to charity, or whatever it is. So yeah, there's a built-in reward. And if you look at nature, evolution has produced built-in rewards for all the things you need to do. You need to eat, so we find that pleasant. You need to have sex, we find that pleasant. You need to nurse your babies, we find that pleasant. So, so things that you need to do have always a built-in reward. And the same is true for acts of altruism. You need to do that. If you live in a society and you want to get ahead in a society, you need to occasionally help each other. I have that conversation many times with those who believe that, you know, you must be assigned a sense of morality. They call it the objective moral standard handed down from on high, whether it's a spiritual other, a deity or whatnot. And looking at it now, I think, well, I mean... A cooperative species is safer and has more resources. It doesn't seem all that difficult. I mean, am I distilling it down to, uh, to am I too simplistic with that, you think? No, it is true that cooperation is found all over the animal world. So many, I'm not even talking about the social insects like bees and ants, but cooperation is very common in the animal world. And yeah, it's a survival strategy. Many animals cannot live, if they live alone, they don't survive. So they... They need each other and they work together. So that, that's the way I look at it, you know, as a survival strategy. So let's flip the coin from joy to angst or sadness or pain. Many times, you know, we look, we look down our noses at the lower primates and we don't see these, I don't know, I, I would, we would call them human emotions, but they're not really. I mean, we see grief, pain, empathy in that way. Do you want to speak to that in the primate world, sir? Yeah, all, I don't think there are uniquely human emotions. I compare it a little bit to the organs. I, I don't have any organ in my body that you don't find in a dog. Uh, I, 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 even with a comparison with frogs, I mean, uh, frogs also have hearts and lungs and brains and all of that. So um, I don't have any unique organs in the same way. I don't think I have any unique emotions. People always assume that humans are more emotional or have richer emotions. I'm, I'm not convinced of that. And so if you make these comparisons of, let's say, morality and sociality, 
We have a tendency in the West to, if humans behave badly, to put that on the animal side. And so that to say they're acting like animals and, and that's a negative. And if humans do something wonderful and are nice to each other and altruistic, which we also can do, then it's humane. We call it human. That's our thing. Uh, I think that's a complete misunderstanding. All, all these tendencies, the positive ones and the negative ones, they come from our primate nature. And so there is, there's very little new, I would say, in human psychology. I was watching a CNN documentary called Blackfish, and it documented how people had gone, uh, employees or contractors working for SeaWorld had gone to a pod of killer whales, and they had found a baby, and they had grabbed it and stolen it from the pod to take it to be displayed. And there was, for lack of a better word, whaling, you know, panic, grief, as the family was seeing the kidnapping of one of their own. And, you know, I was struck by that. I mean, that's something that uh, we as part of the animal kingdom can relate to. It grieves us in our heart. Yeah, I, I think we, we are realizing more and more that um, uh, the, the, the feelings that we have for each other, like love and jealousy and attachment and uh, all these feelings do exist in other species. There, there's people in laboratories who do experiments on rodents to find out how it works. Uh, and so they they look, for example, in, at rodents who have monogamous bonds. So, so male, female, uh, offspring, uh, that kind of family arrangement, and they exist. And then they look at their brains. And, and yeah, very similar processes take place in their brains as in humans who are attached to each other. Talking here with primatologist Franz Duvall, I have a friend, another primatologist. Her name is Erica. She runs the channel Gutsick Gibbon. She likes to talk about politics. Can you speak to politics from your perspective? Yeah, I wrote uh, the book Chimpanzee Politics long ago. And um, actually, the book was used in Washington at some point by by the Republicans. So it was a recommended reading for the Republicans. Hang on. Forgive the interjection. (laughs) Why was it used by the Republican Party? What context did they have it in? Well, it was a book about power politics and, and how chimpanzees are very Machiavellian. And, and strive for power and how to get it. And, and I think at that point, maybe the Republicans were, as they always were, were interested in that kind of politics. And so it was a, put on the recommended reading list at the time. And so politics, the reason we speak of politics in, let's say, chimpanzees is because the rank order is not determined by physical abilities. So it's not the biggest and strongest male who's going to be the dominant male necessarily. It, it can happen, but it is not necessarily true. It can be the smallest male uh, because it's a political process. He needs supporters. He needs coalition partners. He needs to keep them happy. If he becomes the alpha male, he needs to share things with them. Otherwise, they're going to withdraw their support. And so it's really a political process that occurs. Uh, the females are very important in it because the females may support one male and not another male, which also makes a, a big difference. And so um, uh, it is a political process. And, and it's very different from, let's say, the rank order in chickens, uh, where it is indeed the biggest and meanest female who is going to be the dominant. Uh, and that's not how it works in the primates. I was listening to an interview you did on Alan Alda's podcast recently. Alan Alda, the actor, he's just been around for half a century and He's also a great human rights activist and a proponent of science-based education. But you said something about alpha males that I I found was interesting. 
that we mischaracterize the alpha as just being a dominant brute. It's all about physical strength and intimidation. You are the alpha. But that's not the full picture. There's a nurturing side to the alpha. Can you speak to that? Yeah, the, the term alpha male became popular after chimpanzee politics and, and was used more and more and then was adopted by the business world. And if you go to the business section of the bookstore, you will find many books on how to be an alpha male. And what they mean is um, how to be the boss and how to let everyone know that you're the boss and and intimidate everyone and, and get the women. And, and that's the way they look at the alpha male. Uh, it's, it's a sort of caricature because um, alpha male chimpanzees, and, and the same is true for many primates, they uh, have a certain responsibility. And if they don't, fill f- if they don't fulfill these uh, responsibilities, um, they may lose their position. So, so they, they break up fights in the group. They support the underdog, the, the, the young against the old, the females against the males. So they, they, they keep the peace in the group. They are very empathic. They, they react to the distress of others and, and respond to it. And uh, if they are good at it, then the group becomes very harmonious and um, they become very popular. They, they, they become really loved by their community because they are a good leader. If they're not good at it, if they're bullies, they we also have them sometimes, then um, the group is basically waiting for the, the right occasion to get rid of them. And then if there's a challenger, who challenges them, then they're going to support the challenger. To, and so they have a shorter uh, reign, usually, the, the, the males who are like that, the bullies. Uh, so, yeah, it's a very important position, and it's really not the way people think is that primate groups are ruled by a dictator. That's not really how it works. So if I'm understanding this more, I don't know, compassionate connective approach producing goodwill in your community actually makes for a better community they're more loyal there's more of a family atmosphere it's more solid yeah the way i sometimes put it because you you recently you you asked about selfishness and altruism i think from the perspective of the alpha male it's actually uh, it's not just good leadership which is good for the community it's also good for himself. If you if you want to stay on top and be popular, um, that's how you have to behave. If you want to get kicked out or killed even, which, which also happens sometimes, uh, then you act like a bully and, and they will try to get rid of you. And so in the long run, it's actually a better strategy for everyone. Coming up with Dr. DeWall, I want to talk about the female alpha. How's it work with the lower primates and with the human primates? Gonna be fascinating. Stand by. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. 
No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Taste the Mediterranean through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. Save on Animal Welfare Certified Bone-In Beef Short Ribs, Sustainable Wild-Caught Sockeye Salmon, and more. Find sales on Parmigiano-Reggiano, Charcuterie and Ground Lamb. Grab an Olive Bull Bread from the Bakery. Plus, wines from the Mediterranean start at just $8.99. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Must be 21 plus. Please drink responsibly. Don't forget to check out my second podcast, True Stories with Seth Andrews. Five to seven-minute vignettes releasing every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday with just cool stuff. Ancient history, yesterday's headlines, celebrity trivia, weird news, true crime, good stuff. TrueStoriesPodcast.com. Continuing my conversation with Franz DeWall, experts on primates. Now, you're the one who brought up politics, so I'm just going to go there. We talk mm-hmm. about the dominance display. I am the alpha. You know, this sort of, uh, I think, a conspicuous sort of puffing and chest thumping sounds very, and you mentioned the Republicans, sounds kind of Trumpian to me. Do you see what looks like a a dominance display from people like Donald Trump? Well, I think all the politicians, all the time, they are posturing and and they, they make themselves, the men especially, they make themselves look tall and imposing and they deepen their voice. And yeah, that's all a chimpanzee-like uh, display behavior that you can see. It, it's, it's actually interesting in human politics that we also have women now, more and more women actually who are entering politics. And then the dynamic changes completely because all that intimidation behavior doesn't work so well against women or among women. And so uh, <laughs> the rules are really changing as we speak. Uh, for me, it's very interesting to watch all the the non-verbal communication that's going on. So, so if there's a debate like between, let's say, Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump, you see a debate between a man and a woman, you can see that um, actually Trump didn't know what to do. Uh, he, he, he was used to intimidating men, but he knew that would not go very well uh, over if he did that to a woman. So the rules change. And the politicians uh, have trouble dealing with that, I think. Well, the reason I bring it up, and I know it's frustrating, a lot of people are like, why are we always talking politics? But I think, how can you not? Because it's just all around us. But when I see Donald Trump and he grabs the hand of a foreign leader and he pulls him forward and and he stands super tall and he's always judging his opponents with words like weak and small and stupid. And I always think, well, this seems to me like... Um, kind of the weak man's attempt to be dominant, but that, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's accurate or not. And so I didn't mean to drag you into that pool, <laughs> but you have talked politics on many occasions. Let's talk about the female alpha. Um, I guess we'll start with, are there subgroups within larger groups where the woman runs the show? And then I want to get into the female dominant for whole communities. I don't know. It's a big question. I'll let you take it where you would like. Yeah. So, Sometimes people think that men are more hierarchical and dominance-oriented than women. I often hear that. And and my recent book, uh, Different, which is about gender differences, is on that issue to some degree. 
And I don't agree with that. Uh, I, I think in primate communities, the, the competition is among women, among the females, and among the males, not so much between the sexes. It's so, so, so males worry about their position among the males, and females worry about their position among the females. Between the sexes, there's much less competition going on. And all the primate groups have a female hierarchy. There's always an alpha female. So female leadership is really not hard to find in the primates. And even in a group, let's say, of chimpanzees, where usually the males are dominant, the alpha female is a very important figure. And, and I describe in one of my books, Mama, the alpha female of a large colony who was alpha for 40 years, and she was extremely influential, also politically. She, she could make or break a male leader, for example. The, the, the male who wanted to be alpha male, he had to have good relations with mama, otherwise it was not going to happen. So uh, alpha females are easy to find. And then we have another close relative, the bonobo, which is equally close to us as the chimp, but people often forget about them. But in the bonobos, the females are dominant over the males. There's a collective dominance of females over males. They're not individually dominant because they're a bit smaller than the males. But the, the alpha female is alpha over everyone. And so, and so uh, alpha females are easy to find. And, and they, they have the same sort of leadership qualities as alpha males do, in the sense that they also break up fights and they keep the group together and so on. Is the temperature of that alpha different than that of a male? Uh, I don't want to lean too deeply into stereotypes, but is it a more nurturing kind of leadership? Ah, that's not really true. An alpha female needs to be assertive. Uh, and so she will punish uh, females who don't obey her rule. Uh, that's something that is sometimes missing uh, because I recently had some podcasts with, about female leadership. And uh, in the discussion, I noticed that but yeah, the, the female leadership is always described as empathic and friendly and whatever. And I cannot imagine that I'm, the let's say, a female head of a company and someone disagrees with me and keeps disagreeing with me and criticizing me, that at some point I need to put a stop to that if I want to stay on top of that company. So, so I think female leadership um, is usually phrased differently. But just as in the primates, these, these alpha females, they need to assert themselves on occasion and they will punish on occasion and, and they are not always friendly. So um, uh, in all the animal kingdom, we have female hierarchies. Uh, the word pecking order comes from hens, not from roosters. Um, and so female hierarchies, they, they are just as terrifying in some ways as male hierarchies, I would say. Well, my question, I guess, was a little bit of a setup because the the... The myth is, is that women are too emotional to lead. I always find that a very strange statement because yeah. I think men are plenty, plenty emotional. <laughs> uh, if, if, if you look at uh, a Dutch man who are, who are usually very self-controlled, if you look at them during a soccer game, well, there's quite a bit of emotions coming out at that point, you know, whether they lose or whether they win. Uh, so I think men are plenty, plenty emotional. I don't see that overall distinction that women are more emotional than men. Absolutely. I, I think that every time I look around, I'm like, where in the world did someone come up with the idea that men are not emotional or, you know, any of those types of, yeah. of uh, jabs they throw at, uh, at females. You brought up the bonobo. 
I guess mm-hmm. we start with definitions. Can you, um, for those who aren't familiar, they've heard of chimps, they've heard of gorillas. Can you describe the bonobo first? Well, there are apes and monkeys. We are basically apes. We are large, tailless primates. And so the apes is a very small group. Uh, gorillas, chimps, orangutans, bonobos, and us. And then you could include the Neanderthals and, and that kind of primates. So it's a very small group. All the rest is monkeys. They have tails. And in that small group, our closest relatives are chimps and bonobos. And they're equally close to us, exactly equally close. And they are even closer to us than they are to gorillas. But people always think that uh, the apes and the primates, that's um, a different category. But actually, a chimp or a bonobo is closer to us than they are to the gorillas. And so um, the bonobo is a little bit smaller you know, on average than the chimpanzee. Uh, they are rare. They, they are more endangered than chimpanzees. They, they only live in the, uh, in what used to be called Zaire, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, in, in a fairly small piece of, um, of land. And um, we don't know how many there are. There, there may be 10,000 of them. There may be 50,000 of them. The numbers are not really known. But um, they are rare, and they have not been studied as much as the chimpanzee. It's interesting when we talk about the bonobo, I'm going to say it and you can correct me, but much of their currency is sex. Would that be accurate? There's a lot of sexual activity and they use sex to keep the peace. And so it's a much more peaceful species. They are peaceful within the groups, but also even between the groups. And so chimpanzees, they sometimes kill between groups. One, one group of males will enter the territory of another group and start killing some of them. Uh, that's not something that bonobos do. So bonobos, they mingle sometimes between groups. Uh, so they have friend, friendly or semi-friendly relationships between the groups. But when I hear the bonobo communities described, it sounds like just a big orgy. <laughs> you know, I mean, everybody's having sex with everyone. I don't know. I'm just going to throw that out there. Would you talk to me about, you know, there's sort of a, a sexual liberation, for lack of a better word. Well, it's not a liberation because they've always been like that. Okay, um, fair enough. Fair they enough. they um, they have brief sexual contacts. Pe- people often exaggerate um, because, you know, the typical sexual contact in bonobos is 10 seconds or 15 seconds. And so uh, it happens in all combinations of individuals, male-male, male-female, female-female, all combinations do it. Um, and they do it quite frequently. And the female-female sex is the most important, I think, politically speaking, because the females have a sisterhood and they work together very much. And so the, the sexual contacts are important for them to maintain those relationships. Um, the sex is often used in in greetings or to reduce tensions. Let, let's say there's food around and, and there could potentially be competition over that. Uh, then they have sex and they resolve the issues that way and then they share the food. So um, sex is used to resolve issues. It's, it's a make love, not war species. And until now, there are no observations of bonobos killing each other. So for chimpanzees, we have quite a few observations of one chimp killing another chimp, either in captivity or in the wild. For bonobos, we don't have these observations. And so they are a much more peaceful species. I saw, I'm trying to remember the article I'd read. I want to say it was in, I don't know, one of the nature magazines. And it showed two primates and they were engaged in sex. And one was holding a piece of fruit 
it was almost like a reward or something, you know, you let me have sex with you and I will give you the fruits. I don't know. I thought yeah. I, I just, for that, some reason, that may happen. this may be more of a philosophical question, but you've observed them in the wild. We see the bonobos without any concepts of shame or sexual shame. I mean, I live in a Puritan country and so sex is just loaded with shame baggage. You don't see that in the primate world or, or do you, I don't know. What are your thoughts? No, I don't think we see that. Um, it is true that you live in a Puritan culture because when um, the, the story of, of the book today, it did a popular book on bonobos with a lot of pictures of them doing all sorts of things. And, and I ran into the photographer Franz Lanting who had taken thousands of pictures in the field and he could not get them published in the US because it was too explicit to the taste of many people. And so we are both Dutchmen and, and we are much less shy about sex. And so we, we went to a German publisher uh, of Geo magazine and, and they put some copulating bonobos on the cover and they put all, the, all sorts of pictures in there. And then we used that publication to convince an American publisher to publish the bonobo stuff uh, for us and and they did and and there were absolutely no complaints about it. people people thought that maybe everyone would get very upset but no one got upset about it people were more fascinated than upset i think so in the us there's often an enormous shyness about these things um nudity uh, sexuality and so on um but um that's an aberration i would say you're one of the few societies who is like that yeah well, this leans us into religion. I'm just going to sort of skate over the surface, so I'm not going to drag you too deep. But when we see the gods that humans have created, they often look like alphas. Um, I narrated an audiobook by a psychologist, Dr. Hector Garcia. The book is called Alpha God, and it got into specifically the biblical God, the Old Testament God, which has alpha male or at least the stereotypical alpha male attributes. Would you agree that the gods we've constructed often resemble, I don't know, primates? Well, I'm not sure that they look like primates, but they look like uh, all older men for sure. And so so God is usually depicted as male and, and, and with a beard and all of that. Well, I mean, as far as the um, the attitudes, you know, the, the idea of dominance, punishment for non-compliance, yeah, um, yeah, you yeah. know, you, uh, if you are cloistering resources, that kind of thing. Yeah, Freud already. Freud speculated that that we had moved from the what he called the primal horde, you know, a, a group dominated by a, a man, a, a single man, that we had moved from there to religions where we put God in charge as the alpha male. So, so yeah, there's all sorts of speculations that that's the origin of our God image. Is, is a high-ranking male who forbids other males to do certain things. Yeah. Not that there aren't female deities. I'm not trying to overgeneralize, but I do find at least from fundamentalist religions, there seems to be that, you know, there is a dominant, the, usually a male. Um, they were the female side, you know, the female side, um, if you look at the Catholic Church, yes, it, it's very masculine and, and, and all the, the heads of the church are male. But uh, Mary is very, very important. And in some countries, like let's say Mexico and Africa, Mary is actually more important than almost anybody else. And so um, 
even though officially it is a very male-dominated enterprise, if people go to the cathedral, they go to, to a little uh, statue of Mary, and that's the, the, the center for, of their world, basically. A few final moments with primatologist Franz Duvall. Uh, what do you? What do most people, or maybe this is a question about what bothers you the most, what do we get wrong about primates? You see a scientific paper published or you see a pundit on television and you're like, that's wrong. Yeah, I think, I think the idea that um, when we look at other primates, we see biology, we see instinct, we see animals. And if we look at humans, we see culture, we see education and language and things like that. And I think that, that's, that's a wrong way of looking at things. If I look at the other primates, I see culture too. We have a lot of studies now on cultural transmission among the primates and how they learn from each other and how some, some groups have certain techniques that other groups don't use and so on. So if I look at the other primates, I see cultural differences and, and this applies to the gender issue also. I think other primates also have uh, cultural genders the way we do. And if I look at humans, I see an enormous amount of biology. And, and people overlook that very often, but human biology is very important. So, so I think that distinction where we say the other primates, that's biology, and what we have is culture, that distinction doesn't fly well with me. That's a couple of times you've mentioned it. So let me just ask the question about sex and gender. You obviously mm -hmm. have a perspective. You want to go down that rabbit hole? Yeah, so um, sex is more the biological side of things, and sex is mostly divided in male and female. Uh, gender is, is much more cultural, and uh, I usually divide it not in male and female, but in masculine and feminine and everything in between. And gender is, is more determined by culture and, and by our environment. That's also why the rules for gender, they change over time and from place to place. And uh, I think the same applies to other primates. In other primates, you can see that, for example, young females pay more attention to their mother when they imitate behavior. A young males pay more attention to the males around, the adult males around. And so they learn also sex roles, I think, from each other. And, and so in that sense, we can also speak of gender in the other primates. So as we see a, a color spectrum or, a, I don't know, you see the spectrum of different species, all the different attributes, you see, you see gender is kind of a spectrum. I mean, it's not any one thing. We like to be reductive. We want to reduce things into binary terms, right? A, B, yes, no, black, yeah. white. Uh, but you don't see it that way. No, I, I think the same gender diversity that we have in human society, we see in other primates as well. So you have individuals who are more homosexual than heterosexual. Uh, and actually, uh, bonobos I would call bisexual in the sense that I don't think it makes sense to make the distinction between those two for them. Uh, and, and you have individuals uh, who don't follow the gender roles. So you may have males who are not interested in being alpha male at all. They, they have no interest in the macho games. Or you have females. Uh, I describe in my book um, a female chimpanzee named Donna who acted more like a male. From very young, she acted more like a male. And when she was older, she, from a distance, she looked like a male and she associated with the males. And so... Um, uh, when we talk about uh, homosexuality and transgender issues and so on, I think that same sort of diversity you can find in the other primates. Uh, the, the big difference with us 
is that they don't worry about it. They, they, there's no intolerance. Um, I've never noticed that they have trouble with these individuals. They just accept them as they are. Yeah. I read an article where you use the word intolerance. You think intolerance is, is it a, a characteristic of the human primates? We are very normative in our societies. And in addition, we have language. And, and so that makes us divide things. And so the LGBTQ, that's all labeling. That's different labels. So, so we like labeling. And uh, if you don't fit the labels, uh, then you're probably not tolerated. And so we have a lot of trouble with individuals who fall outside of the boxes that we set up. Well, let's finish on a high note. What's your favorite part of your job? You've been doing this on the order of decades, and you obviously still love what you do. And, you know, what is it about what you do as a primatologist, your connection to the living world that most inspires you, at least right now? But the thing that I like the most is just watching animals. And so, and so even though I'm not in my real life the most patient person necessarily, as soon as I have animals around me, I become very patient. And, and I don't interfere necessarily with them. I just, um, I, I can watch them for hours. And, and, and the longer you watch certain animals, the more you're going to see. Uh, and that's a bit counterintuitive for people because they, they look at, let's say, a group of chimps and they see nothing. Uh, and, they, and they see only a fraction of what I see because I've learned to watch them. So, so that, I think that's the thing that I like the most is watching animals. Not to be too touchy-feely, but I, I just picture you out there communing with nature. I mean, is that a little too syrupy? Would that be accurate? Yeah, I'm not at all uh, an animal hugger necessarily. I don't need to have them in my arms or on my neck or whatever. That's not necessary for me. Uh, just um, being close to them and seeing them, that's uh, su sufficient for me. Primatologist, author, speaker, educator, Franz Duvall, thank you so much for taking a little time to educate a, you know, a, a former fundamentalist evangelical who once was insulted by the idea that I was a primate related to primates. You caught me at a time in my life when I'm excited about my connection to the natural world, the fact that I am an evolved <laughs> That's good, creature. that's good. Yeah, I mean, you probably bump into that. People like me who had the epiphany, right? And they're like, I'm no longer freaked mm -hmm. out. Now I actually feel more connected, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's so hard about it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, why would I be insulted or intimidated why not feel connected uh i appreciate so much you being here i will put links to uh your pages and to your books in the description box and all my best in your work sir thank you follow the thinking atheist on facebook and twitter for a complete archive of podcasts and videos products like mugs and t-shirts featuring the thinking atheist logo links to atheist pages and resources and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions log on to our website thethinkingatheist.com hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.